Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Oftentimes when you're around your parents, uh, they might tell you a story or two. How many of you grew up with parents who like to tell stories? But how many of you realize, like, the older you get, the stories just stay the same? Like, there's no new stories. The stories are basically the same stories told over and over and over again. And then at some point during the period of time you're growing up, and unfortunately, probably much later in life, you realize why they're telling the story. They're trying to teach something. They're trying to illustrate something in their life. They're trying to tell a story. Uh, They're trying to um, give you wisdom without just slapping you upside the head, right? They're trying to explain some things that happened to them in their life. And because of what happened to them in their life, maybe there's some practical applications for you in your life today. What we're going to read in John chapter 4 is kind of one of those stories. If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably have heard portions of this story. You maybe have heard uh, the basic outline of this story, and maybe you've even read this story. My goal in sharing this story today is trying to unpack some of the cultural elements of first century Jerusalem in order for us to kind of figure out, oh, that's why we're listening to the story again. We're in this series called Guiding Values, and what we have done is trying to paint a picture of what our church's guiding values will be, have been, as a church family. And we've started with this premise, we're a church family committed to loving God and loving others through three primary values. Number one, an authentic faith. We don't want a faith that you simply slip on on Sunday mornings and then take off as soon as you go home to watch the game, right? We want to be Christians to the core. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. We want every single moment of our life to be influenced and impacted by our faith to the absolute core of who we are not just on Sunday mornings. Not only that, we want to be people that have healthy relationships. We're talking about people that will honor one another, people that will, uh, will strive to have tenderhearted mercy and kindness. We want to be people that will exhibit humility with people and forgive one another. We want to be known. We want to display all the attributes of what it looks like for us to have healthy relationships with one another. And then finally, we want to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. By the way, that's why we're here. We're here because of Jesus. We're here because of what he has done for us. We're here because we have all recognized that there is more to this life than chasing our own selfish ambition. There's more to this life than following a code of ethics. There's more to this life than just evaluating uh, your sense of purpose. But you were created in God's image and what Jesus has done for us compels us to follow him And we want to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. So we're going to begin in John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. And again, this is how this morning is going to go. We're going to go through the entire narrative, some 30 verses or so. 
And then at the end of going through the narrative, then we're going to identify these four or five application points. But first, we're going to review some of the historical and cultural context found in John chapter 4, and then we're going to try to apply them for our day today. All right, John chapter 4, this is where we're going. Number, verse number 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to, where did he go? Galilee. Verse 4, let's say this verse together, ready, begin. He had to go through Samaria on the way. So Jesus is anticipating that his expanding popularity would also invite tension and conflict from the religious elite. And one of the primary uh, things we'll see in the gospel as Jesus begins to unveil who he is, is that he recognizing that timing was important. In fact, often as you read through the gospels, you'll find different instances where Jesus might heal someone and the curious instructions he would give that person is, please don't tell anybody what I've done for you today. And they looked at him like, say, what? I already tweeted it. So <laughs> it was kind of a curious instruction. But one of the things you'll recognize is Jesus understood timing. There were several things that had to happen before he would reveal himself to be the Messiah. So rather than invite the tension and the conflict, he wanted to return back to Galilee. Now, pious Jews avoided the quickest path from Jerusalem to Galilee, which would be to go through Samaria. They did so because many of the Jews distrusted and disliked Samaritans. So there's three primary reasons. They are not in your notes. You might want to jot them down or maybe do some research this week. First of all, there were some cultural issues. After conquering northern Israel in 722 B.C., the Assyrians expelled most of the Jewish people. So when a conquering nation would come in and expel the Jewish people, that meant that their land was no longer theirs. And history will record that they expelled most of the Jews. They left behind much of the lower class of the Jewish population. The Babylonians took Judah 136 years later, and they employed a similar strategy. They conquered, they expelled most of the Jewish people, they left behind the lower classes. So these people that were left behind ended up growing up and ended up marrying those who were not Jewish people who did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in doing so, their cultural values became compromised. And so this led to this Samaritan ethnic and religious community born out of the fact that most of the Jewish people had left, those that were left behind were lower class. When they grew up, they married non-Jewish people, and their values became to be compromised. There's also a religious issue. Because of this compromise in cultural values, the Samaritans combined the law of Moses with superstitions they held to. So not only did they honor some of the law of Moses, 
but they had superstitions that they also embraced. And so as families became compromised in terms of their values, as as cultural values began to take its toll on a people, they were not only reaching out and embracing the law of Moses into their life, but they were also embracing superstition in their life, other values. So there was a religious issue. Most of the time in Jesus' time, people detested these Samaritans. Not only was there cultural and religious issues, there was historical hatred. Around 128 BC, the Jews burnt the Samaritans' Mount Gerizim temple. So their place of worship, Mount Gerizim, remember that name, we'll come back to it in 20 verses or so. They burned their temple. The Jewish people burned the Samaritan's people temple. This undoubtedly worsened the ties between Jewish and Samaritan people. Now, when Jesus traveled by way of Samaritan, by Samaria, it was intentional and it was also unheard of. It did not make any sense for a Jewish person to go through this land where they would be in the land of those they hated. So that's kind of the context of this story. Verse 5, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. This is an important uh, distinction Why is Sychar important? Why is Jacob's name mentioned? Well, remember, Samaritan people did embrace some of the law of Moses. So the fact that it was Jacob's well was important to them. But Sychar was very important. It was the capital of the Samaritan people. Uh, Abram first landed in Canaan from Babylonia here in Sychar. Jacob constructed an altar in the Lord called El Elohi Israel here in Sychar. Joseph's bones were interned here after being transported from Egypt. So they had many, many different ways to tie this land, both to the Jewish people and to the Samaritan people. So the location is very important. We go to verse 6 and it says this, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, everyone say that next word, tired, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. I think it's interesting and I think it's important that John made sure to show us that Jesus was God, but when he was in the flesh, when he was human, he was not superhuman. He accepted our human limitations. And here clearly it says, Jesus was exhausted after walking all day. So John is able to calculate that this was about noon or uh, at the hottest point of the day. Um, And a drink would have refreshed Jesus who was exhausted and overheated. We're going to skip to verse 7 now. Uh, Verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. We're going to pause there for just a minute. Jesus was there because he was traveling, right? Right? He was traveling and he was tired. So Jesus' excuse while he was at the well at the hottest part of the day is pretty common. He's traveling. He just needs a drink. He's not looking to get water for the rest of the day. He's just getting a drink of water. He's tired. He's traveling. So he stops at this well. This woman really didn't have a good excuse to travel to the well in the middle of the day. It would be Jewish custom that you would go twice in a day to go to a well. You would go either first thing in the morning in the cool of the day, and you would gather enough water for the rest of the day, or you would go at the end of the day when the sun had already set in the cool of the night and gather water for the next morning. You would not do so in the middle of the day. 
In fact, not only would they do so in the, middle, in, the, in the morning and in the evening, they would do so with other women. They would do so as a group. I have no evidence that this is where the term talking at the water cooler came from, but I would really like to assume this is where it came from. Women would gather with other women. It was a social point for them. The chore had to be done anyway. Might as well do it with other women. They would go in the morning and they would go in the evening. It also helped them because it protected them from any would-be vandals, any would-be people that would seek to attack them. So women would go in groups and they would go in the morning and they would go at night. So John's being very particular. It was noon. It was the middle of the day. It was the hottest point of the day. And soon... A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So let's try to understand the cultural moment here. At that time, in first century Jerusalem, in that area, Jews rarely asked favors or drank from Samaritan cups. Either one of these would be a startling reality for a Jewish person to ask a Samaritan for a drink. The woman was shocked by Jesus' suggestions. In fact, rabbis traditionally did not speak with women in public Get this, even their wives or their daughters. So publicly greeting a lady was was forbidden or looked down upon with austere rabbis. In fact, there was a group of rabbis that were so particular about not communicating with women in public. They were known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis. These Pharisees would close their eyes when they spotted a woman on the street and walked into walls, homes, or they would wander in the street. That sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? Like taking an expect, cultural expectation and then raising it fourfold when there's no necessary reason, right? So these bruised, bruised and bleeding Pharisees. So you can imagine the shock when Jesus not only is at the well... But now says, would you please give me a drink? The woman was surprised, it says, because Jews refused to have anything to do with them. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? So think about this scene. You have the Messiah asking a Samaritan woman for drink. You have this exhausted Christ asking this woman for a drink, but also offering rest. And then you have this person with living water requesting a sip from Jacob's well. So the woman must have been impressed by Jesus' warmth because she doesn't leave. She engages in some kind of conversation, even though it's extremely rare for a Jewish person to interact with a Samaritan, let alone for a man to interact with a woman, let alone a rabbi with a woman. So though... John thought that this was well understood in the day, and so he starts explaining why this hostility should have existed. These nations would have been at each other's throats in this kind of situation, and yet 
there have this conversation. And he says, please give me a drink. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? We read on verse 10. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has given, I'm sorry, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now we read this and we say, living water. Wow, this is something amazing. This is different. Um, spring water that was burst up from the ground, ancient people would call living water because it burst up out of the ground. And so Jesus is actually calling living water this spiritual water or spiritual water this living water. He's using a play on words since it quenches the spiritual thirst and gives life. She responds, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this wall, this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? So without the cultural nuance of understanding, well, living water simply is a spring that comes out of the ground, we would say, boy, she is dense. She's not being dense. She is actually leaning into the conversation and realizing, hey, you don't have a rope. You don't have a bucket. Where are you going to get this living water? She goes on in verse 12. Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water, everyone say better water, than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed. So there is this moment for this woman where she starts defending her heritage. Remember, they embrace the law of Moses, superstitions. Part of their lineage is from Jewish people, but part of it is from uh, Samaritans that moved into that area. So they, Jewish people and Samaritans are both claiming Jacob, and now she is defending her lineage. She's defending her culture, and she says, how much better could it be than the well from Jacob, from the water from Jacob's well? How much better could it be than the water that we have enjoyed and his sons and children have enjoyed and the animals have enjoyed. What's interesting is we kind of get her start getting, we kind of sense that she started getting interested in what Jesus had to say and what he had to offer. So verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, give them, giving them eternal life. Before we get any further, that's a pretty great promise, isn't it? Let's just look at that again. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. This water that you're getting from Jacob's well, once you drink it, you're just going to have to come back tomorrow. And then you're going to have to come back the next day. And you're going to have to come back the next day. You will thirst again. And then he says, but those who drink the water I give, this living water I'm talking about, will never be thirsty again. It'll be a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. That's a pretty great promise, isn't it? Look how she responds. She says this, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. But look at how she qualifies the last part of the statement. And I won't have to come here to get water. 
Jesus understood that this woman in the village had to visit this well daily to quench their thirst. And Jesus uses thirst to symbolize our inner need. And the offer was remarkable. He, br- he would bring fulfillment to this, woman, to this woman and anyone who would drink of the living water. Living water makes all the difference. And what she was thirsty for, Jesus was able to supply something that would meet those needs. And people often try to fulfill their God-centered thirst with temporary solutions. And when you try to fill a God-sized thirst with temporary solutions, you always will be left wanting more. So if you're looking for affirmation in your life and you seek it from your friends instead of Jesus, it might fulfill for a moment, but it will leave you lacking or wanting more. If you're looking for community, and so you get involved in uh, different activities that provide community of common interest, whether they're sports or clubs, for a while that will fulfill your need for community. But whenever that desire for that specific group wanes in your life, you'll still need community. If you're looking for attention, and so you spend all your time looking for ways to post the perfect Instagram clips so that people will simply affirm your life and, and, and validate the attention that you're seeking for, at some point that will wane in your life. If you're long for feeling wanted and desired and you try to fulfill that with sexual activity or your sexual desires being fulfilled instead of Jesus, there will come a point where you're still wanting more. And what Jesus was trying to explain to this woman is there is a thirst in your soul and the only thing that will satisfy it is living water. So you have to choose. Do you want temporary fulfillment or eternal fulfillment? Do you want to be thirsty or do you want to be quenched? Do you want to have your life centered around yourself or God? Charles Spurgeon was an old preacher from like the 1800s, I think. And he preached this message from this text. And I was reading through the message. And there was a few sentences he said that really struck me. He says this. What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. He simply drinks. To drink is to receive, to take in refreshing Draw it, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, and yet he can drink. He may be an unworthy character, but yet he can drink. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing to do, it is more simple than eating. When someone is thirsty, they simply drink. Now, this woman responds logically, not spiritually. It feels like in this text that she wanted what he promised in order to avoid the daily visits to the well, in order to take out an errand in her day. Jesus, if you want to make my life easy and more convenient, I'm all in, give it to me. And so Jesus responds because he knew the condition of her heart. And before I read on, this is not a gotcha moment. This is not a moment where we get to criticize the lady for her life. This is not a moment where we get to judge her based on the life she has lived. This is a moment for us to understand that there was something deeper going on. And so with sensitive hearts, let's read Jesus' response when she says, 
I want this water. Verse 16, he says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And she says, I don't have a husband. The woman replied, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly speak, spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. This is a lengthy public interaction between a rabbi and a woman. And so at some point for someone to ask, well, go get your husband, is actually not out of the norm. It would have been perfectly normal for a man in his position to say, maybe I should continue this conversation with the man, your husband. Culturally speaking, that would have been appropriate in this context. And yet Christ supernaturally understood that the woman's marriage history was more complicated than her claim of having no husband. What's beautiful here is Christ enters our soul through numerous doors. For some of us, it's through understanding in moments of our, uh, our, 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 our worst moments. For some, it's through affection. Some, it's by fear. And some, through hope. And I think through this woman, he opened or he went through the door through her conscience. Jesus brought up this uncomfortable matter to address her life and the choices she had made. And since he elevates the conversation to a spiritual realm, so does she. Look at verse 20. So tell me, why is it that Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount, where is it? Mount Gerizim. Remember why that's significant? 136 years ago or something like that, the Jewish people destroyed and burned down their temple at Mount Gerizim. So she's saying, while we claim it's here in Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Now, when we read this, we can think, well, she is totally changing the subject. You ever change the subject on someone and start talking about something that you know that will get them riled up so they can forget about the previous thing they were talking about? This is not what she's doing. Remember, the last statement she says is, man, I think you're a prophet, I think you're someone who might have some contextual understanding, some actual higher learning that would help me understand some things. So she says, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is a place of worship? Jesus leans into the conversation. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true, <clears throat> when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those, that worship, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus said, or Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. She may have been confused. It's more likely that she was maybe evading the matter of her numerous former marriages, but maybe she was just looking for some clarity But when she realized he was a prophet. 
And so he, she begins to argue over worship venues. And I think what's interesting here is Jesus prioritized souls over arguments. And that's not one of the lessons that are in your notes, but I think it's a pretty cool example to us that Jesus prioritized souls over arguments. He didn't allow this woman to bait him into a discussion that would get away from why he was there in the first place. He prioritized her soul no matter how much she was trying to get into an argument. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing, since the Samaritans believed Moses ordered an altar there. And as with other faiths that they incorporated in their own religion, they freely admitted they worshiped the unknown God. And so Jesus showed her that there would come a day when worship would not be based on places, but on the heart. And spiritual worship is focused on spiritual reality. So to worship in truth means to follow God's full word. It means you approach God honestly, not just for your, your own appeasement in your own heart. Now, despite her sin, Jesus tells her, I am the Messiah. In these words, Jesus defined the true worship, spirit and truth, not places and trappings. So we read on, verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? So imagine they left for a period of time. They went into town to get food so that they could eat. Um, now, this is probably amazing to consider. They left town, and she came from town, right? What are the chances they passed each other on the road? I don't know, but I think pretty good. And when you think about that interaction, the Jewish people would have retreated to the other side of the road. They would have forced this woman to wait while they passed. They would have forced her to wait till they passed before she kept on walking. They would have avoided her at all cost. And whether they remembered her or not on their walk to town, on the way back, they see him talking to a woman in the middle of the day, and it's a Samaritan woman, and they are in shock. And I love how this translation put it. They were shocked, but they didn't have the nerve to ask Jesus what was going on. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well. And ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the villages to see him. Jesus is astonished, or he's astonishing the disciples by talking. They presumably felt it was right and appropriate not to challenge Jesus, she leaves her water part by the well, probably just struck by Jesus' presence. She could always come back and get it. But he's so moved, this woman, that she told the city to come to the well to meet him. And the Samaritan lady was so moved by Jesus' love that she sought out fellow villagers, even though they had made her an outcast, even though she was one of the people that would have to come in the middle of the day, even though the people in the morning would not invite her to go out for their water run, even the people at night wouldn't invite her. She was an outcast. She was in a compromised situation at home. She was this person that had to live life on the outskirts as an outcast, and yet she became vulnerable in order 
order to tell them all that Jesus had said, all that he had proved, and ask the question, my goodness, could he be the Messiah? Jesus never made her feel like, well, he hates me or he doesn't want me around. He provided a secure, safe place for her to confess her guilt, to trust in Jesus, and to figure out that he was the Messiah. So, what does this mean for us? Well, we're going to be a church family that gives every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. We're going to be a church family that gives every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means we're going to pursue opportunities even when it's inconvenient. We're going to provide, I'm sorry, pursue opportunities to tell people about Jesus even when it is inconvenient. It means that when you're tired, um, when you're put out, when it's socially awkward, all of those things that existed in this scenario with Jesus, we're still going to pursue opportunities to tell people about Jesus. We're going to put ourselves out there. We're going to be vulnerable enough to recognize that meeting Jesus is way more important than our fatigue in that moment. That meeting Jesus is way more important than the social awkwardness that, might have in a, that you might have in a conversation. We're going to pursue opportunities even when it is inconvenient. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter in our church. It's early this year, by the way. It's March 31st. So we're just a few, two months away from Easter. And we are going to pursue opportunities to tell people about Jesus in anticipation of Easter Sunday. That means we're going to ask you to be involved. We're going to ask you to share the event on Facebook. And you say, well, Facebook's kind of my, that's kind of like my non-Jesus space. It's kind of the space where I just kind of, I just kind of waft through life and I got people, you don't understand, Daniel, I got people that like know me, know me, right? And if they saw that I was posting something that had anything to do with faith, I would have a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, that sounds like something you should address. We're going to ask you to pass out invitations this year. To, to pass out invitations to someone. And you say, why, why, why would we go through all of this extra effort on Easter Sunday? Well, it is proven that around that time of year, people want to hear about Jesus. They just do. And people, we should write this down. I should have put this in this notes. People find Jesus because of people. This is how people find Jesus. Every one of you can point, and this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Every one of you can point to a specific person in your life or group of people in your life that have brought you to the feet of Jesus. It might be your parents, it might be a friend, it might be the person you're sitting next to, it might be uh, someone who lives in another state, it might, it might be someone who's already passed and gone to glory. But every one of us can point to a person or a group of people that have brought us to Jesus. So when Easter comes around, guess what? We get to be that people that will pursue opportunities, even when it's inconvenient. That the, the song we just sang, uh, there's no shadow that he won't light up. There's no mountain that he wouldn't climb. There's no wall that he wouldn't, I'm not going to do it, like kick down. 
There is no lie that he won't tear down all to pursue you. And then we get so embarrassed because we have to give someone an invitation or we have to pray before a meal or we have to do something that outs us as a Christian. And what I'm asking us to consider is that Jesus came for us and people will find Jesus if they find us. So what does that look like for you? To pursue an opportunity even when it's inconvenient. Number two, what does it mean that we're going to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus? We're going to build relationships. We are going to build relationships. That means this. We will meet people where they are, and then we'll bring them to Jesus. This story is so powerful because they met at a well in Samaria. You know how inconvenient that must have been? Jesus did not wait for this woman at the temple. He did not wait for her in Jerusalem. He did not wait for her in Galilee where he was going. He met her at the temple because that's where she would be. And so we're going to meet people where they are. Aren't you glad Jesus met you where you were, by the way? I'm glad he met me where I was. Because very few people were willing to come to me where I was. Right? And so let's be the kind of people that are going to meet people where they are, build relationship, and then bring them to Jesus. What does that mean? It means we're going to value people as individuals with souls. It means we're going to care for them. It means we're going to be patient with them as they sort out where God fits in their life. It means we're going to do those things that we talked about last week when we honor them, where we show tender mercy and kindness, where we will exhibit humility and gentleness and patience, where we will forgive them. And if we can do that, if we can build relationship, all of a sudden, we are not responsible for their relationship with God. We're only responsible for being Jesus to them. We meet them where they are, and then we bring them to Jesus. So we're going to pursue opportunities when it's, even when it's inconvenient. We're going to build relationships. We're going to give them the truth in love. We meet people where they are, and then we bring them to Jesus. What's beautiful about this interaction is the amount of time that Jesus spends with this woman at the well. Could you imagine if he came to the well and started with, go get your husband? I don't know how long that conversation would last. I don't know how long it would last if he had said, um, the, the salvation only comes by the Jewish people, by the way. Would you please give me a drink? I don't know how long that conversation would last. But after pursuing an opportunity, even when it was inconvenient, he goes to Samaria, meets him at the well at the hottest point of the day. After building relationship, obviously through this conversation, there comes a point and there will come a point for us where we get to simply show them and tell them the truth in love. You say, when will people change? When will they accept Jesus? Well, that's not up to us. It's, a, it's, a, it's up to Jesus. Our responsibility is to love them well, bring them to Jesus, and then we rest in his love. We simply rest in his love. 
And so we're going to build relationships. We're going to give them the truth and love. And then finally this morning, we're going to be vulnerable as we share our stories. I think, I think the most, uh, one of the most powerful parts of this story is when she recognizes that he's the Messiah, her first impulse is to go tell others. And here's the thing. She wasn't telling strangers. She went back to her town. And as people would recognize, oh, wait, she is, you know who she is. She's the one that goes to the well at noon. She's the one that doesn't come in the morning. You know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know her past. You know her story. You know her. You, you know what she's been through. That guy she's living with, not her husband. I mean, I, didn't, I don't, like, you didn't hear that from me, but what everyone else is saying is that that's not her husband. So this woman goes to this town where people knew the innermost parts of her life, knew her brokenness, knew her details, and she becomes completely vulnerable and says, hey, I just met a man who knew me in my brokenness. I think he might be the Messiah because he accepted me. He told me there was a way that I would be able to worship. He said that there was a way to worship him in spirit and in truth. And she became totally vulnerable as she shared her stories. And what this world is looking for, what our community is looking for, is people that will not put on the Christian veneer on the outside and say, come be perfect just like me. But rather, a person that will come to them and say, man, can I just, can I just share you what Jesus has done for me? Because in my brokenness, I never thought I would meet someone who would accept me like I was. Can I tell you about my redemption and my restoration by Jesus' grace, by his love? Like, like what he has done for me, he surely can do for you. So we're going to be vulnerable as we share our stories. I was listening to last week to uh, Darren's message when he shared his story last summer. And I'm updating the website and putting some things in place. And so if they want to get to know a little bit more about us, I was going to put a link to Darren's message. So I listened to it again. Can I just tell you, it is an absolute miracle that Darren, well, I could finish that sentence a lot of ways. (laughs) It's absolutely a miracle what the grace of God has done in Darren's life. And at the conclusion of today's service, we're going to pray for him as he goes to Africa, as he goes to Guinea-Bissau, in order to represent Jesus. Like we get to be vulnerable as we share our stories and we rejoice in what God has done in us because what he has done for us, he will do for others. So what does this look like for us? Well, I hope you've pulled away something from John chapter 4. We are going to be a people that give other people every opportunity to meet Jesus. We're going to pursue opportunities even when it is inconvenient. We're going to build relationships. We'll give them truth and love, and we're going to be vulnerable as we share our stories. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc.com at gmail.com in addition if you're listening to this message on apple or spotify we invite you to like subscribe rate and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well 
God bless you and have a beautiful day.